I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. As we continue our chronological reading of the Gospels, today we'll be looking at Luke chapter 13, beginning with verse 22, all the way over to chapter 14, verse 35, and then we'll be reading John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. In today's reading, we'll be seeing the following events in Jesus' ministry. He's been ministering in Judea and arrives in Jerusalem in these passages. And then we see in John chapter 10, verse 22, that's now the ninth month of the year, just three months or so prior to the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, If you'd like to see an explanation of the chronological order that we've followed here, then consult the notes on John chapter 10, verses 1 to 21. All right, let's begin by reading Luke chapter 13, beginning with verse 22. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in, and shall not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up, and hath shut to the door, and ye begin to stand without, and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us, and he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last which shall be first, And there are first which shall be last. Now, after reading from the beginning of Luke chapter 12, one might deduct that very few are actually on their way to life in that messianic kingdom that Jesus has been preaching. Jesus has been blasting the hypocrisy of the most well-respected religious leaders of his day. Based on Jesus' comments, a man asked Jesus in verse 23, Lord, are there few that be saved? Jesus explains that there are a lot of religious people around them, but they have rejected the message of salvation, and he's talking about those religious leaders. However, the little people, the common man, received the message of salvation. Those hypocritical Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders that we talked about, they rejected the message, prompting Jesus to point out in verse 30, he says, And behold, there are last which shall be first, and there are first which shall be last. I guess being religious like the Pharisees and the Sadducees just isn't enough. There's one more interesting and very telling statement here by Jesus when he says in verse 29, And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south, and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. In other words, there will be Gentiles who will be in the presence of God, while some unbelieving Jews will will not be in the presence of God. They'll be without. 
To a Jew in Jesus' day, well, that's just ultimate irony. Interestingly enough, the many versus few saved controversy raged among the Jews in the first century as much as it does among Christian Bible scholars today. We know from the record of Jewish oral tradition, the Mishnah, that some scholars held to the notion that only the committed adherents to Judaism would enter, actually, into the Messianic kingdom, while other Jewish authorities in the first century held that only those who blatantly rejected Judaism would be exempted. You can imagine the thought processes that must have been working when this man had heard a message from Jesus that even the Pharisees weren't guaranteed a place in the kingdom, yet another doctrinal deviation from the two positions held during that era. If you'd like to see more information on the kingdom message, then read the introduction on my notes for Matthew chapter 5. In Luke chapter 13, verses 31 to 35, the Pharisees attempt to scare Jesus out of Jerusalem. Verse 31, The same day there came certain of the Pharisees, saying unto him, Get thee out, and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto them, how often would I have gathered thy children together, as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and verily I say unto you, ye shall not see me, until the time come when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Well, the Pharisees of all people warned Jesus to flee Jerusalem, lest Herod should kill him. They suppose they had an ulterior motive here. Jesus replies that Herod does not have control over his destiny. And, by the way, he's not going to be intimidated into leaving Jerusalem by a bunch of weasel-mouthed Pharisees either. Verse 32 is packed full of implications. Here's what it says. And he said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils and do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. I'm certain that Jesus' disciples must have reflected back on these words later on and realized that Jesus was undoubtedly speaking of his resurrection. Notice the bold words Jesus uses to say in essence, Herod, that fox, he does not control my destiny. Now, if you're looking for messianic implications, they're all here in these five verses, though subtle as they might be. Verse 35 has particular significance when Jesus says, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and verily I say unto you, ye shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Jesus in that passage pulls together two prophetic passages of Scripture to make his point. The first is drawn from Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 5. That verse says, But if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, saith the Lord, that his house shall become a desolation. In that passage, Jeremiah is prophesying the fall of the house of Judah to the Babylonians. That fall was finalized with the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. 
From that time through Jesus' day, Israel had been subservient to other nations. Since that time, they'd been looking for Messiah, and that's what makes the second part of that verse so significant. The second part is a quotation from a Messianic psalm, Psalm 118.26. It says, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. The name of the Lord in that passage is the special name for the God of the Jews, Jehovah, sometimes pronounced Yahweh. After the resurrection of Jesus, the authentication of Jesus as the Messiah will be complete. Jesus is Jehovah. So Jesus is telling them that while Jerusalem has suffered the desolation prophesied by Jeremiah, Jesus is the Messiah that cometh in the name of the Lord. Incidentally, Jesus again quoted from Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 5, and Psalm 118, 26, over in Matthew chapter 23, verses 38 and 39. In Luke chapter 14, we begin the chapter with the healing of a man with dropsy, verse 1. And it came to pass, as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him, and behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. And Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace. And he took him and healed him and let him go. And answered them, saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit, and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him again to these things. Well, Jesus goes to the house of one of the chief Pharisees, it says here, on the Sabbath day, presumably after a service at the local synagogue. This chief Pharisee was probably a member of the Sanhedrin, that was the ruling council over the Jews in Jerusalem. At the dinner, verse 1 indicates that they, the Pharisees, watched him, Jesus. The Greek imperfect tense for watched in that verse would indicate careful scrutiny over a period of time. Then a man with a disease just happens to show up on the Sabbath in front of Jesus and the Pharisees. Hmm, was that a coincidence or was it a setup? This disease called dropsy, we are told, was one in ancient manuscripts described as a swelling of the parts of the body due to fluid collecting in the tissues. As Jesus sees the man, he queries these influential leaders regarding the appropriateness of healing this man on the Sabbath day. Now, it's interesting to me that there seems to be no dispute this day. What's the difference? Well, could it be that this was because, presumably, this man was one of the honored guests of the chief Pharisee? Perhaps making him one of those highly esteemed Jewish leaders that no one wanted to interfere with his healing? Could it be that? They really were a bunch of hypocrites, weren't they? Just think of all the other times when Jesus was railed against for performing the same act of healing on commoners on the Sabbath. This favoritism notion is supported by the discussion that follows in verses 7 through 14. Incidentally, there really was no prohibition in the law of Moses regarding healing on the Sabbath day. That provision had become part of the oral traditions appended to the law, many of which were by the Pharisees themselves. Who's the big guy here at verses 7 through 14? It follows on the heels of the healing that took place in verses 1 through 6. Verse 7. And he put forth a parable to those which were bidden, 
when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Then said he also to him that bade him, When thou makest a dinner or supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee. For thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Well, this hypocrisy that we talked about in verses 1 through 6 doesn't go unnoticed by Jesus. He then begins a parable taken right out of Proverbs chapter 25, verses 6 and 7, about good banquet etiquette, which says, Put not forth thyself in the presence of the king, and stand not in the place of great men. For better it is that it be said unto thee, Come up hither, and thou shouldest be put lower in the presence of the prince whom thine eyes have seen. Well, however, I think the intent here was really to draw a contrast concerning the lack of objection these leaders had regarding the healing of this influential man on the Sabbath day in verses 1 through 6, when they had, on other occasions, furiously objected to such activity on the Sabbath day when it involved just common people. In verse 12, he turns his attention to the host regarding the social status of his guest, mostly people who can return the hospitality. Jesus admonishes him to consider inviting those who have no ability to reciprocate with such an invitation, being the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. Well, it's obvious that these Jewish leaders, in fact, did know how to scratch each other's backs, so to speak. The point of this parable must not be overlooked. It's about the self-promotion of the Pharisees. They exalted themselves rather than being exalted by God. There's certainly a lesson to be learned by all of us from this parable. And it's this, let God do the exalting, let's just do the serving. We change the subject over in verse 15. And it's changed by one of the men in attendance there, verse 15. And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then said he unto him, A certain man made a great supper and bade many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded. 
and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you, that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. Now, perhaps this man who seems to interrupt Jesus as he's addressing the host of the banquet, maybe he's trying to take some heat off the host when he blurts out in verse 15, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then again, it may be that this man is ready to get down to the purpose for which they've invited Jesus to dinner in the first place, to harvest some words of indictment against Jesus himself. Well, there seems to be a trend. When Jesus is present, the subject always seems to get around to the kingdom message. So let's get started. It's safe, therefore, to assume that the parable beginning in verse 16 concerns this kingdom presentation. The kingdom message was that which Jesus preached throughout his earthly ministry. This message specifically addresses the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah and the establishment of the Davidic throne, which is going to be based in Jerusalem. Now, for more on that kingdom message, look at the introduction to my notes on Matthew chapter 5 in that commentary. Now, in this crowd of Jewish leaders, it would be assumed that any overthrow of Roman authority by the Messiah would automatically include these leaders in the new government. However, when you read the parable Jesus spoke before these influential Jews, it would appear that he's telling them right to their faces that they are out in lieu of the common neglected Jewish populace. Look at the conclusion of the parable in Luke 14:24. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. The Jewish leaders had opportunities to embrace the Messiah, Jesus, but they declined the invitation. Incidentally, the marriage supper of the Lamb that we see in Matthew chapter 25 outlines this very same issue of entry into the Messianic kingdom known as the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Then we have the sacrifices of discipleship in Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 25 down through verse 35. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply, after he had laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it began to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage, and desireth conditions of peace." So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Well, now the settings change, and here's the great multitude that seemed to accumulate around Jesus. What's their interest with Jesus anyway? Well, he miraculously healed and preached the message of the kingdom. In the people's minds, this was a real deal. I mean, it was the 
big event they've been waiting for. Roman oppression may very well soon come to a screeching halt in lieu of the Messiah's reign. And here's that Messiah, right here in their presence. Little did they realize that becoming a disciple of Jesus at this point meant quite the opposite from what they were anticipating. It would mean, I mean, discipleship, following Jesus at this point, would mean following him to his crucifixion in the very near future. Discipleship at this point is not at all what the people following Jesus thinks that it is. Now, if you are a little puzzled about the real meaning of discipleship, consult my notes on Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 27, paralleled by Mark 8, 34 through 38, and Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 26. You must understand this concept of discipleship in order to differentiate between the call of discipleship by believers today in contrast to the special call to discipleship then that involved forsaking everything, including one's family ties, to follow Jesus all the way to the crucifixion. Now, allow me to ask you this question. Ultimately, who did follow Jesus to the crucifixion just a few weeks later? Well, the answer to that question is found in Mark chapter 14, verse 15. Here's what it says. And they all forsook him and fled. So with the crucifixion just a few weeks away, do these people really want to become disciples? I mean, do they really want to follow Jesus all the way to the death? Consider this. Unless these people have no consideration whatsoever for the impact this will have on their families and don't even mind losing their own lives as well, they simply cannot be disciples on this last stretch of Jesus' ministry all the way to the death. Now, Jesus uses two examples in making this point regarding one's failing to count the cost of success. The first example is a successful builder who counts the cost of the project prior to starting the project. And the second example is a prudent king who counts the cost of war before engaging in this pursuit. Jesus then makes another emphasis to his point when he says in verse 33, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Many teachers have massaged and massaged these verses to try to explain away these extreme requirements and make them fit general discipleship. Jesus fully understands that no one will actually follow him to his death, and therefore no one accurately counted the cost for this special purpose to the death discipleship. Now, let's put this passage into perspective. First of all, know this. Salvation and discipleship are not one in the same. Now, let me say that again. Salvation and discipleship are not the same thing. Discipleship should follow salvation, but they're not one in the same. Second of all, to pass on the opportunity to physically follow Jesus to the death during his earthly ministry... Well, that didn't mean that these people declined salvation. Jesus had already chosen his disciples for his earthly ministry. Jesus, having complete foreknowledge of events that would soon take place, discouraged these latecomers from becoming his disciples at this stage of his ministry. Many over the years have misunderstood this passage to mean that one cannot serve God without forsaking family. Well, that takes this passage out of context. That's not taught here at all. 
What is taught is that Jesus' time on earth was short. He had no home. Those who follow him, literally those who accompanied him in his journeys, at this point would be called upon to make a huge personal sacrifice to follow him to his death. Now here's an important concept on serving God. When God requires it, he gives you the grace to offer it. And for those who adamantly insist that discipleship and salvation are one and the same, these words of Jesus are particularly difficult to reconcile. Salvation is consummated when one responds to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit and accepts Jesus Christ as Savior of one's life. Look at my commentary on Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 21 to get some real clarity on this issue. Now, discipleship, on the other hand, is based upon a personal choice to follow Jesus' example after salvation. Well, of course, discipleship should follow salvation. But again, let me say, they are not one and the same. Now we move over to John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. We're going to see that 22 uh, takes place about three months after the ending of verse 21 of that same passage. Verse 22. And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple on Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, Ye are gods? If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, Thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works, that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me, and I in him. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand, and went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true. And many believed on him there. Now, I know while this appears to be a continuation of the confrontation that began between the Jews and Jesus after healed the blind man in John chapter 9 verse 1, which ran all the way down through chapter 10 verse 21, it's not the same occasion. Some time has lapsed, according to verse 22, where we get a definite time fix for this occasion, and it's the Feast of Dedication. Now, the Feast of Dedication is now known as Hanukkah, 
It was established as a memorial to the purification and rededication of the temple by Judas Maccabeus on Kislev 25th, 165 B.C. Now, there's a chart of Jewish festivals that I provided under the topic section of BibleTrack.org. You can look there to get an overview of the festivals and their significance. The temple had been defiled three years earlier by Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Antiochus, the king of Syria, had captured Jerusalem back then in 165 B.C. and plundered the temple treasury and sacrificed a hog to Jupiter on the temple altar. This attempt to destroy Jewish tradition and religious practices resulted in the Maccabean Revolt, which after three years was successful in defeating the Syrian armies and also in liberating the Jewish people. Therefore, this festival was established as an annual event along with the other festivals found in Leviticus chapter 23. This festival is observed in Kislev 25 on the Jewish calendar each year. The date falls within a few days of the celebration of Christmas. The Jewish calendar doesn't precisely track each year with our Roman calendar. I've got an article on the topic section of BibleTrack.org on the Jewish calendar. Consult that, get an idea how that works and how that correlates to our Roman calendar. We can therefore conclusively place this event to have taken place during Hanukkah, just prior to Jesus' crucifixion. Now, if you'd like more information on the chronology between John chapter 10, verses 1 to 21, and the division here, beginning with verse 22, consult my notes on John chapter 10, verses 1 to 21. Now, these Pharisees and the sympathizers, they're looking for a direct statement of incrimination in verse 24. In other words, if Jesus will just proclaim himself to be the Messiah there, these Pharisees can go ahead and present him as a threat to Caesar's rule. But Jesus' time, it's not yet. Jesus differentiates these men with evil intent from real followers with the sheep analogy. Sheep or real believers have eternal life, and they hear the voice of their shepherd, being Jesus. These sheep have eternal life. The message got through. These Jews show their refusal to receive Jesus as their Savior by taking up stones to stone him in verse 31 after Jesus makes a definitive statement about his identity in verse 30. There he said, I and my Father are one. Now some today dispute the deity of Jesus Christ by insisting that uh, Jesus is not proclaiming himself to be God in the flesh in verse 30. But this passage clearly indicates that Jesus did indeed proclaim his deity here. And the Jews clearly understood it in verse 32 when they say, Thou being a man, makest thyself God. Then their verbal duel with Jesus becomes even more interesting. Jesus confuses them in their outrage in verses 34 and 35 when he quotes Psalm 82, 6, which says, I have said, your gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. Now, here's a note to give you a little explanation on Jesus' usage of Psalm 82, verse 6. Here's what it says. It's from the Expositor's Bible Commentary. Had Jesus not meant to convey a claim to deity, he undoubtedly would have protested the action of the Jews by declaring that they had misunderstood him. On the contrary, Jesus introduced an argument from the Psalms to strengthen his statement. 
Psalm 82.6 represents God as addressing a group of beings whom he calls gods. Now that's the Hebrew word Elohim and sons of the Most High. If then these terms can be applied to ordinary mortals or even angels, how could Jesus be accused of blasphemy when he applied them to himself, whom the Father set apart and sent into the world on a special mission? Jesus was not offering a false claim. He was merely asserting what he was by rights. That's the end of the Expositor's Bible Commentary note. Let me add to that that Jesus uses this passage from the Old Testament, one which the Pharisees obviously didn't understand. He uses it to thoroughly confuse them. I mean, how do you reply to that? Let's face it. They were simply no intellectual match against God in the flesh, Jesus himself. At the conclusion of this confrontation with the Pharisees, verse 40 tells us that Jesus heads across the Jordan River away from Jerusalem. That's the region known as Perea. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.